Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in blustery and rainy downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. Panelists today are David Anderson, Charles Curran, Emmanuel Gennard. And today we'll be talking about knowledge sharing. As developers, we gain knowledge and we try to disperse said knowledge to other people on the team. And we just want to make sure that we can capture the many different ways that us as developers and developers out there can share said knowledge. As consultants, we find ourselves bouncing from client to client. And I imagine the first thing that we need to obtain in knowledge sharing is the domain knowledge itself. You could come from finance and pick up buzzwords from finance and then go to the music industry, which has completely different vocabulary. Manu, could you elaborate on some of the ways you find yourself picking up domain knowledge? Yeah. Recently, I've had experience at a client where I came in with no domain knowledge at all of what the project was about. I found myself being able to sort of read the code and understand that this method called that method and this class, you know, did this stuff or maybe this class needed these arguments to work. But what it meant and why it might have needed was really foggy to me. I mean, I couldn't really understand the why behind everything. And so one of the things I really had to do was ask a lot of questions about, you know, what this code does, what, why this class name is one thing versus something else. And also, frankly, do a lot of reading because it was something that, one, is actually pretty, pretty important in our field, which is, you know, DevOps stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not something I've had any practice in at all. I've never really had to do it. You know, I've used Heroku all the time. And so now you have to actually do what Heroku is doing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For you by, yeah. by yourself. <laughs> Emmanuel is Heroku. Yes. Yeah. You are Heroku now. <laughs> and so so these are two couple of specific things that I did. I kind of decided that I was going to kind of pursue I was gonna get an AWS certification. I would then understand a lot of the words that the client devs were using and the reasons they were using them. Okay. But I also learned a lot by just pairing with people who did have this experience. Client devs and a more senior dev from Stride. And I would just, especially the one from Strider, the Strider, I asked, I asked that dev tons of questions. And right. sometimes I would just, I was really lucky because he was willing to just sit and explain something to me like in the middle of working on a story right. for like 20 minutes, which was really, really, really helpful. And also, frankly, just working on it almost every day, mm-hmm. every weekday for almost six months now. Okay. You know, the, the client understood that I didn't have any experience in this and they were really accommodating. And so I had time to learn it. So to sum up, really, I would say that the pairing and taking the time to study about the domain and also, and the third part was just being around people who are working in the domain. And it's hard to really be specific about how that helped, but listening to the words every day, listening to the conversations they were having, they were very obscure when I first started, but now they're less obscure. Once in a while, they're still very obscure, right. but they're much less obscure than they were when I first began. And so this communication that happens between people and in a team is really something that we at Stride 
really value and try to work towards. But also, I think any team needs to do so that everyone can understand what you know what we're all doing here. You know why we're mm-hmm. all doing it too. So for this particular domain, I guess a lot of the language that you were trying to figure out was around like servers and networking and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Servers, networking. There's a lot of vocabulary really. And each of the cloud providers have their own vocabulary for sometimes the same things, sometimes different things. Right. And I guess like learning the vocabulary for Heroku even like, yeah, you know what Heroku calls it. And yeah. underneath all of that, underneath all these hierarchies of different layers, it's really this one thing. Like if you had like a, a room filled with computers mm-hmm. with wires connecting all of them, then you know exactly what to call it. Yeah. It'd be right there. It's really, yeah, that, that's a really good way of, of describing it. It's sort of like going into, you know what, at the client I man, there, they still have server rooms mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so it'd be like going to the server room oh. right? <laughs> <laughs> with all the racks of computers and the yeah. wires and the wires upon wires and the blinking lights yeah. <laughs> yeah. right right i have a question how would you feel that experience would be if you were working at the client remotely like not being able to you know be in the same room with overhearing yeah. the conversations and stuff like that do you think that it's more difficult for a remote individual versus someone that would be very difficult i've done some remote pair programming Mm -hmm. and it was always about something very specific and where we we both knew what we were doing if i really didn't understand what i was doing i couldn't and i would have to constantly maybe slack a message to the client dev to ask hey what does this mean instead of maybe just kind of popping my head over and saying hey well this thing right here oh okay Mm -hmm. thanks if I could have lunch with the client dev. Yeah. And if maybe while working, let's say, I don't know, I couldn't pair remotely and I had a, I was stuck on something. I've noticed that a lot of things that, enough things, I should say, enough things I get stuck on while programming are sometimes very silly, simple things that I just for some reason don't, don't understand. It's not a matter of a problem to figure out or some piece of logic to understand. It's really just like, hey, when you're using this language, you just have to do this instead of that. Uh, I see. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they've, they've already made that mistake and yeah. they've banged their heads and yeah. they've kind of leveled up already. Yeah. That's really, and you know, oh, if you're trying to connect AWS, you have to just include this to it or else it won't work. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think the, just like the fact that you're there in the same room as a lot of the client devs would allow you to pick up things a lot more quickly than and it gives you an advantage than doing things remotely and then having to slack someone because i mean it's very powerful that you can walk over to someone's desk and say hey you got a second i have this question and then like get a immediate response whether hey give me one second i'm in the middle of something or i'll be right with you kind of mm-hmm. thing yeah yeah i was thinking about this too and i guess like in terms of domain knowledge there's kind of like different kinds of domains. Like you might have a physical domain where you actually have servers or what have you. But then there's also like often like process domain where things may be intangible and you may not be able to directly understand it without someone who's like been through it. Like past clients that I've worked at are pretty heavy in like regulation. And, you know, so they have a layer of like physical product 
but then there's also like the government regulation and the rules they're following and the different steps that you follow for each of those things. And, you know, having ubiquitous language in the code helps because then you can look at the method and be like, okay, well, this is called a shipment and, you know, it corresponds to these different rules or this is like a delivery notice or what have you you know, often that's, that's not enough and you do need to be there and ask a lot of questions. Cool. Charles, you had mentioned different way of doing knowledge sharing. Do you like to chime in on that for a bit? So I was at a client where they were, they were a fan of a form of like upfront documentation that they called a tech design. And the point of these tech designs was before you were about to take on like a piece of work, kind of sharing within the engineering organization what you were doing, why you were doing it. In this particular case, we were working a lot with microservices. So what endpoints were involved, what the paths for everything was going to be, and also what data stores you'd have to touch. And I found that process, it was was really good at kind of getting input from people that were interested But at the same time, that was supposed to be a livable piece of documentation. And frequently those tech designs became outdated by the time whatever was implemented, what was intended to be implemented was actually implemented. The other thing that I noticed was sometimes developers became extremely focused on this tech design that they would rely upon it as a single source of truth when reality was telling them something else. Oh, interesting. Mm. And so I did learn a valuable lesson in actually discovering actual truths. And I also had to write several of these tech designs myself. And I found that when I was writing tech designs, the, the thing that helped me the most was actually breaking down like approximate stories of what what I was going to work on or tickets on things I'm going to work on and kind of communicating that as opposed to a very inferior, like some kind of generic process because eventually it would become tickets and stories anyway. Right. Do you find that those documentation tech designs, you call them? Yeah, that, that's what they were called. Do you find them getting outdated very quickly? And how does that get managed? I think it like kind of was like reliant on the team that actually wrote them. And some people were really good at keeping them up to date and some people were not so good. I think that if you came across one that was inaccurate, you try to update it. But ultimately, there were a couple other different things that we could rely upon. They had really good tests, for example, extremely good functional tests. And there were a number of people at the organization who were maybe a little bit more specialized in different areas or different domains. So there was always someone you can kind of talk to, which is also a weakness, but it's also it's a strength. How is that a weakness? Well, if the person's out on paternity leave. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a bus factor. Islands of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so you, ha- you could end up having some islands of knowledge. And so this particular client, they were moving away from a old monolith where... There was some testing, but not great testing in certain mm-hmm. areas. And that's where the islands of knowledge kind of came into play. Mm-hmm. So would you guys use any form of like automatically generated documentation 
alongside this or was that kind of the only means that they were using to to document? Well, we did do inline documentation for files and function or method declaration. Kind of like using Sphinx or some document generation? Yeah, yeah. We, there were several different... We were using Python, JavaScript, and PHP. So there's... <laughs> depending on the <laughs> language, what I prefer to do is make pretty descriptive tests. And so I'd try to let the test be the documentation. And I think most of the teams mm-hmm. are really good at good about doing that because we already had great test coverage. So that, that was very helpful for me. But mm-hmm. because there was this microservice architecture, you're also kind of reliant upon, you were still kind of reliant upon these tech designs to tell you which microservice has to communicate with what other microservice and what table in the data store that several of these microservices may be sharing actually is being accessed. Right. So that was the difficult... Could be a downstream impact. Yeah. So that was the difficult thing to communicate. Like you couldn't do that in line with your code. You couldn't really have your tests be your guide. You would have to have maybe the functional tests a little bit, but you'd have to have some knowledge of what was going on there. Yeah. I personally like really love it when there's just a great readme that greets you when you open up a Git repo. <laughs> like when I can just do a Git clone and then follow like, you know, two or three simple instructions to build it, test it, deploy it. Like I am, I'm so overjoyed. I find that sometimes I'm the person who writes the readme or keeps it up to date. <laughs> so if I started a client frequently, the first like couple days or so, you're setting up your environment, you're getting to know people, maybe you're working on a story or two with somebody else. But I find that like most of the time it's like, huh, no one has set up the environment in a little while. And look at <laughs> look at these readme steps that are yeah, that are up. So. Yeah. I think it's important to note as a developer, if you if you do have that readme and it does become out of date, like just help everyone out. Yeah, yeah. That's part of like leaving it better than you found it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's an easy win. I, I've done that quite a bit myself where like you get everything set up, it works great, and then you try to test it and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And it's like, oh, there's this one gotcha that like, of course you needed to do that. Why wouldn't you know that? You know, everyone who's been here for three years or four years knows <laughs> perfectly well how you do that. Yeah, I usually find myself, like, if if I was given a repo to clone and there was documentation, I would definitely look into that. Like, if I was unable to speak to anyone, it would either be the documentation and then just try to read the specs and the test to see what I can find out of out of this code base. Like if there's any domain knowledge written in the test, that, that's a start or in, in the unit test or in the functional test and the integration test. I find myself trying to get knowledge that way. But definitely between the documentation that Charles brought up and just being in with other developers and pairing that Emmanuel brought up, those are like top ways to ramp up on a client and on a code base that will definitely help out developers out there who are mm. just starting on this brand new project that they're on or even just like sharing the knowledge for new people right like then sooner or later hiring is going to happen a new person comes in and you want to make sure the process is easier for the next person mm-hmm. yeah i definitely love finding like system diagrams like showing how all of the different data stores and applications are interacting 
but there's definitely a light level of extraction that is good to have because if you have too much information then it's a complete overload and you can't get anything out of it like i've seen this one diagram that had literally every single server and every single like data exchange for you know very complicated company systems and that's pretty much impossible to get anything out of except for maybe the guy who created it (laughs) but you know if you have the right level of extraction then it's pretty great to just really quickly understand okay well this this piece fits over here and this piece is over there yeah i would assume that making some kind of boundaries about like specific domains within those pieces of documentation would be helpful as well like rather than having this giant overview of this giant system kind of kind of pulling it out into different layers. Right. Yeah. Like the, these are tightly coupled. So we'll like zoom in and look at this. Cool. I'm glad everyone was able to share their knowledge and knowledge sharing. I think <laughs> uh, in the different avenues that we found, developers out there can leave it better than the way that they saw it before in sharing knowledge and being more efficient in the workplace. Do we have any teacher learns we like to talk about? Sure. So I've been reading, rereading, or maybe reading the whole way through for the first time. Again, for the first time. Again, for the first time. <laughs> Sandy Betts' book, Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby. And I ran into this, these last chapters six and seven, where she talks about inheritance and sharing behavior through modules and she basically explained that inheritance and like you know including a module is basically a form of automatic message delegation where you know this instance doesn't have this message but it just goes up or it just finds somewhere in its hierarchy either the class hierarchy or in some through some module or in ruby through method missing to find what if this object can respond to this message right mm. but one of the really interesting things that she mentioned there is using the template method pattern. I probably think it's interesting because I had a chance to use it at work because I had this huge case statement inside of a abstract class okay. that was checking essentially what the subclasses were. But it wasn't directly checking it, but the the endpoint ended up being that. Like, what are these subclasses? If it's, you're this subclass, do this stuff. You're this other subclass, do this stuff. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. really simple thing to do where the abstract superclass just implemented what was common to all of them. And then it merged or it called a class that was only implemented in the subclasses, right? And so then the subclass just, all they had to do was implement that method that was specific to them. Okay. So let's say you are like taking order taking an order for something and the order class is, you know, has like maybe has a price and where it's going and maybe the order for books has a special kind of shipping thing. The order for clothes has a different kind of shipping thing. So in the, in the abstract class, you will just do the things that are common to all of them and you then write a method that the super class just takes in at the end of the order Mm-hmm. And the subclasses implement that method. And to make it you know, viable as a template pattern, what you have to do is in the superclass, you have to implement that method as well, even if it's empty. What she suggests mm-hmm. doing is putting a raise and not implemented error okay. so that if it's not implemented, it raises an error and say, hey, this needs to be in a subclass. 
because really right. only the subclasses ever get created. Ah, uh, okay. But that the abstract class is just something that collects stuff that's common to all of them. Yeah, I've I've been using TastyPy a lot more with Python, and it uses that a lot as well. So I was I was doing like TDD to make a new Rust resource, mm-hmm. and I just kept on bumping into not implemented. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need yeah. to implement that. Let me do that. <laughs> cool. I have taught someone something today, which was really <laughs> interesting. In the midst of speaking with someone who was you know, starting up in programming, one of the failures that they've mentioned was Git push force. And I'm sure everyone in this room and developers out there may have push force over someone's work. I yeah. have never done yeah, that. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, come on. I would never. I had mentioned to this person that she should look into force with lease. And what Git push force with lease does is it pretty much checks with origin to ensure that there were no changes before you get push force. So if the event that, you know, we have a developer I, Michael, was working with, let's say Bobby, for example, Bobby has some changes and pushes up and I make a rebase from the develop branch and then decide to push my changes up. If I get push force, it totally erases Bobby's work and it could have been hours of work, and now Bobby hates me, and we don't want that. So if you get push force with lease, it'll at least check to see that everything is okay, that there were no changes done by another, I believe, commit hash, to check and ensure whether it's safe to make the changes that had happened between where you were and what the origin head is. So I definitely would suggest people checking out get push force with lease and not use force because then you just erase people's work that they've been working with. I'd like to thank all the panelists today. Thank you guys for coming out. I'd like to thank all the developers as well. This is The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time. <laughs>